0: So there's a song I really like by the singer-songwriter Jason Isbell. And uh, it's called If We Were Vampires. It's not a song about vampires. But it's about the eventual sad passing of a spouse. So the chorus goes like this. And it's actually a really beautiful song, even though it's about death. It's knowing that this can't go on forever. Likely one of us will have to spend some days alone alone. Maybe we'll get 40 years together. But one day I'll be gone. Or one day you'll be gone. Now, Tara, my wife, has said to me on more than one occasion that she hopes I go first. I know. And uh, and the reason is, it might be because I annoy her a good bit, but it's because she thinks I can't survive without her, which is very true. So I do hope it goes down that way as well. But... When you get married, and especially as you grow older in marriage, uh, this is something you really start thinking about. I mean, Jason Isbell is actually right on when he's singing about this: "Who will go first? Uh, what will life be without them?" Well, in our story today, sadly, we learn that it's Abraham who will have to spend some days alone because Sarah, his wife, dies. <clears throat> Now, Sarah, as the text tells us, was 127 years old when she died and had been married to Abraham for more than 60 years. And despite her flaws and glaring imperfections that have been laid out before us in the scriptures, Sarah was actually a great woman of faith. Did you know there is nowhere in the Bible where we are told to look to Mary the mother of Jesus, as an example of what a godly woman should be. Nowhere in the Bible. Apologies to my Catholic friends, but it's true. You can look it up. But in two different passages, we are told to look to Sarah. Look at Sarah's life. The first is in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 51. He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and look to Sarah who bore you. And then the second is found in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 6. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, Not because she was a perfect person. We know that for a fact that she wasn't. But because her life was pointing not to herself, but to a greater reality. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, that that great uh, passage of faith there, uh, brings up Sarah. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised since she considered God faithful, who had promised her a child. Even though her response was not great, she still had faith that God was going to give her this promised child. Now, this is the first in a number of death reports that the writer of Hebrews summarizes by saying the words, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. So that's an important statement, because what that tells us is that that the promise that God gave to Abraham and Sarah was not exhausted in their lifetime. They didn't get to see this promise fulfilled beyond their own, only son that was born. So Sarah's death is, it is the central narrative concern of the chapter. But it's through Sarah's death we also learn the central theological concern of the chapter which has everything to do with God and his promise to Abraham and Sarah, even though God is not mentioned in our chapter. So this is why I had us read chapter 12 uh, in the service so that we could be reminded of this promise because that was a long time ago that we were back in chapter 12, back in January. But God says to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. Because it may seem that with the death of Sarah, and later in chapter 25, the death of Abraham, that the promise of the land is faltering. And we really do run into to some tension here, don't we? Because how are God's people supposed to increase to outnumber the stars and the sand and take possession of the promised land if the patriarch and matriarch of the covenant are dead. What's more is that they don't even possess the land yet. So what are we supposed to learn in all of this? Well, I hope three things. So one, the first thing is the irony of the promise. The second is the confirmation of the promise. And then the the last is the final hope of the promise. So the irony, the confirmation, and the final hope. So, the first thing we need to realize in our text is the irony that is found there. Because here's Abraham standing in the land that has been prom- promised to him by God with his dead wife's body before him, and he's having to negotiate a burial place for her. So, even more, just to give you some history, the Hittites who he's having these negotiations are actually people who were cursed by Noah. Back in uh, Genesis chapter 9, because of of his son's disobedience, when he looked upon his father when he was naked, he curses this whole race of people to be servants of the line of promise, which we know from a few weeks back is Abraham's line. So these are actually supposed to be future servants of Abraham's line. And even so, this is what is said to them back in chapter 9, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So you can see that the irony is thick here. I mean, look at how Abraham interacts with these people in verses 3-4. through It says, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So Abraham has just admitted that the land is not yet in his possession. That there are other people who live and own the land within it. So much so that Abraham considers himself and identifies himself as but a traveler, a sojourner, a temporary resident, not of this country. So this is ironic because God has promised him the land that he considers himself a sojourner in. You have to understand that Abraham now, he has a right to the land. So this would be like uh, finding squat. You go home from, from uh, worship today and you find squatters in your home and they've just taken up residence and they're eating all your food and you know, doing everything they want to do and you are having to negotiate with them about renting a room from, from them in your own home. It's ridiculous. You have a right to that home. But the author of Hebrews clues us in to why Abraham lives this way. He writes in Hebrews 11 verses 9 through 10. By faith, he went, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So if you're going to take up residencies for residency in a place for a long time, you don't just set up tents. You build things that will last. Abraham wasn't doing that. So living in tents with with Isaac and Jacob, even into the next generation, heirs with him of the same promise. And then verse 10, why is he doing all this? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham was a man who lived in the already and not yet reality of the kingdom of God. He he was confident enough in God's promise of of the land to humbly approach a cursed people and ask for a cave, just a cave, to bury his wife within this land. Because he knew that the promise he received from God was not merely real estate on this earth, but a promised kingdom to come, that far outweighed anything he could attain in this world. You see it in his, his actual, his physical posture towards these people in verses 7 through 9. It tells us, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, It is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So here's Abraham, the great man of faith, the friend of God. They actually call him a prince among them. And he rose and he bowed before them. There's a humility to him here that strikes me as staggering. Considering everything we know about Abraham's story, I mean, if you remember back in chapter 14 when Abraham rescues his nephew Lot, he takes with him, you remember the story, he takes with him only 318 men against four kingdoms. That's four armies. And he wins. So Abraham is not some helpless old man here. I'm sure his bodyguard was closely behind him during these interactions. He could take the land by force if he wanted to. He could have his way very easily, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't choose to take matters into his own hands as has been his pattern in his lifetime. He chooses instead to walk by faith and trust God's plan and trust God's promise to him. Even, those, even though he knows, he will not see it to completion. He knows that. Now, I just wonder, just to ask you a question. How, how well are you doing at this? Do you walk by faith and trust God's plan, even when it's difficult or impossible to see the end? I know we're Americans, and we like to have things laid out. We like to have our budget laid out. We like to have our life choices laid out, and we want to know what's going to happen at the end. You know, that's why we set up a retirement accounts so that we can be safe and secure and, you know, we can have everything we need at the end of our life, which is great. Let I me mean, do those things. But are you trusting God when you can't see the end? Are you trusting God when things are difficult? Or do you instead seek to take matters into your own hands? Maybe you think if things aren't going the way you want, that God has forgotten about you, or even worse, completely abandoned you. I was pointed to this article in the New York Times this, uh, last week, uh, during Holy Week, through a podcast I listened to, in, um Beckett's podcast, Beckett Cook's podcast. Um, and the title of the article is, In this time of war, I propose we give up God. So he's, the author is referring to the war in the Ukraine and, and the brutality that is being done to those in that country. To so the writer, Shalom Oslander says this, In this time of war and violence, of oppression and suffering, I propose we pass over something else. Clever play on words there. Passover. Did you get that? I propose we pass over something else. God. And he's saying this. That because of the oppression and suffering that we are seeing and that that our friends are experiencing in this in this war, and these tragedies, he says the solution for that is get rid of God. That it's better to put him out of our lives when things are hard or unclear, essentially is what he's saying, instead of looking to him and trusting in his good plan. Even when it's tragic. Even when it's very difficult. Thankfully, Abraham teaches us what to do here, which is not to get rid of God, but to look to him instead. I mean, the only reason Abraham was able to respond in this way, in the way that he does to these future servants of the people of God, is because he had a heavenly vision. He was looking beyond this world into the next, which is far better. Paul says this is the type of vision you are to have as a Christian. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Is this your vision? Is that your vision? Is that what you see? Is that what you behold every single day as a believer in Jesus? Is this what you have your eyes set on? Because I can tell you with confidence that if, that if, if it's anything other than Jesus that your eyes are set on, your vision will be seriously hindered. Because the Bible says. And when I say hindered, I mean really hindered. The Bible says that you are blind. The Bible uses language like you are in darkness. That you are just kind of groping around in the pitch blackness of night. And that it's only Christ who can give you clear vision. Who, Who brings you out of this darkness into his marvelous light so that you can see reality for what it really is. So we move now from the irony of the promise to the confirmation of the promise. And we see how the promise is confirmed in Abraham's life by his taking possession of the cave to bury his wife. So I love the exchange that takes place uh, here in verses 10 through 18 um, because here you have Abraham negotiating with someone who is seeking to appear better than he is. I don't know if you caught that or not. But here you have this man Ephron who is in front of his buddies, and he's, he's fronting as if he is willing to give the cave to Abraham for free. So look at verse, eight, uh, verse 11. This is Ephron. No, no, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So when Abraham refuses this, this deal, which I think Ephron knew he would, uh, Ephron then cleverly slips in his price in verse 15. My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth, I don't know, 400 pieces of shekel of silver? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just ballparking it here. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And we know this is what Eph- Ephron is up to because Abraham's response is to pay him the price that he gives in verse 16. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So a bit of an awkward interaction, not Abraham's first awkward interaction with other people. But why is this important? Why did Abraham not take Ephron up on his deal? I mean, free land. Why not? But for that answer we need to go back again to that battle of four kings and look at the look at why Abraham refused the gifts offered him after the battle uh, after that battle in chapter 14. So if you remember or if you weren't here with us, Abraham after the battle has been won this mysterious man who is who is a king, who is referred to as a king and also a priest of the most high god named Melchizedek just appears out of nowhere it seems. And he blesses Abraham. The really significant part of Abraham's story. But there's somebody else present during that blessing. And it's the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom is there. And so after Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek, uh, the king of Sodom kind of moves in. And he offers Abraham a cut of the spoils of war. So you can take whatever you want. We'll just take this little bit over here because you won this battle. We are indebted to you. And then Abraham's response to this king's offer is this. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Why? Lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Abraham's very careful in this interaction to say, look, I'm not, take, I'm not even taking a shoestring from you because I don't want you to have any credit for what God has done. This is the same thing that's happening in chapter 23. Abraham is communicating to Ephron, to the Hittites, and all of the other people of the land that, that currently live in the land that he knows who is giving him this land, and it's not Ephron. It's not the Hittites. It's God Most High. To take the land for free would be allowing these people to say, I gave Abraham the land. It's because of me that Abraham and his descendants possess the land, not God. So the simple fact that Abraham buys a burial site for his wife cannot be lost on us. Because similar to what he did in planting the tamarisk tree back in chapter 21, Abraham was walking by faith and saying this, I know this land is promised to me by God, and even if I will not inhabit it myself, I know that my descendants will. And Abraham says all of this in the purchase of this tomb for his wife. Because not only will his wife be buried there, but he will be buried there, his children will be buried there, and his children's children will be buried there. This was a family tomb. So during that time, they would, they would place the body in the tomb and eventually the, the body would decompose and it would just be bones there. And they would either put them in a box and put them in the, in, leave them in the tomb or they would push them to the back of the, of, of the cave to make room for other bodies. But this was intended for Abraham to bury his entire family here. Generations of people. So this, this, this being a family tomb was for his promised descendants. Those, those descendants that were, out, that were going to outnumber the, seas, the, the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. Abraham was saying all of this through the purchase of this tomb. And we know that, and, and the scriptures tell us that Abraham was buried here. Isaac was buried here. Jacob was buried here. Rebecca and Leah all uh, would later be uh, laid to rest in this same cave. Generations. The promise is confirmed. And next we learn the final hope of the promise. So, so to only see this as a real estate transaction is to not only, to not only miss the point of the passage but it's to miss the point of Genesis as a book and to miss the point of the entire Bible, actually. Because it's not about the land, necessarily, but about the hope that the land symbolizes, the hope that the land is pointing to, which is God providing a future place for his future people to dwell. And to be able to see this, you, you have to have eyes of faith and I know this is hard you have to have eyes of faith that can look beyond this life that can look beyond the constraints of death even to the eternal in his essay A Sickness Unto Death the Danish philosopher historian Kierkegaard said that uh, despair is precisely to have lost the eternal and oneself. Despair is precisely to have lost the eternal and one self. What does that mean? It means that in, a, that in times of grief, which are appropriate, and you should grieve, as Abraham's even experiencing here, only a living faith in a future hope in the eternal will keep you from despair, will keep you from hopelessness. And we see this in Abraham as he, as he signs his name to the deed for this cave in verse 20. Abraham is able in his grief to lean into the promises of God which is the promise of the land to his descendants. So this is significant because culturally speaking it would make sense and nobody would fault Abraham for this in, in that culture for Abraham to head, head on back to his ancestral home back in Ur and to say, you know what? It's over. We've had a good run. I'm just going to head on back home. Abraham doesn't do that. We know that. He lives in tents. Even with his own kids, he lives in tents. But the purchase of, of this cave for Serial's burial confirms that Abraham believes God's promised to give his descendants the land of Canaan. And this again is another situation in which Abraham is Uh, demonstrating the faith that was credited to him as righteousness back in chapter 15. This This is how Abraham now walks according to the righteousness that he has in Christ. He's not trusting in the outward circumstances. He would have given up a long time ago if he was because all of those outward circumstances, even the ones that you're experiencing currently, are fickle. They change from day to day. The one thing that you are weeping over tomorrow, next week you will not be. The one thing that you are anxious about today, even tomorrow you won't be anxious about that, more than likely. Our situations change. Our outward circumstances change constantly. But the promise of the Almighty God does not. And so Abraham demonstrates his intentions to remain in the place that God has promised through this simple purchase of a cave. So a way in which, as we close, a way in which we can demonstrate this in our own lives as Christians is to be those who, like Abraham, even in the face of losing the one he loves most, his wife. I would be devastated if that happened. But even in the face of that, he was looking to a better country. He was looking to a city whose, foundation and, uh, whose builder and foundations are God. That's where Abraham had his eyes set. And as believers, as the church, that is what we are to be doing as well, to be looking to a better country. Because, you know, we celebrated the resurrection. We are, actually, we are still in the Easter season. So do not let anybody tell you that we are not in the Easter season. We are still to be able to say, uh, Jesus has risen, and we need to be continuing to say that um, throughout the rest of the year even. But Jesus Jesus rose so that this better country for you and I could could be had by us. So that we could be restored into that relationship with God. And as you do this, as you set your eyes on this better country that Jesus is preparing for us, this will transform every interaction that you have in your life. It will transform you personally, but it will transform everybody around you and in every place that you set your foot. I'll close with a word from C.S. Lewis from your Christianity who touches on this very idea uh, in in his book where he says this. It's a longer quote, but I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to say amen, and then we're going to pray. So no no comments about it. I'll just let him speak. So he says this is the Christian way, okay? The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hungry. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such, such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find myself, in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire For my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have provided a better country for us. That we are to set our eyes there, and I pray that we would do that well as a a body. And as individuals, even. That we would encourage one another to that. That we would not allow it to get snowed under. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.